We ask that you would send your spirit now upon us as we listen to your word. Open up our hearts and minds to hear. May you move in our lives by your spirit. May we be changed by the word we hear. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. If you could ask Jesus just one thing to teach you, what would you ask? Lord, would you help me cope at work? Lord, could you help, help my marriage? Lord, could you teach me to be a better husband or wife? Lord, teach me to parent. I don't know how to deal with uh, teenagers or toddlers or whatever it is. What would you ask? If you could just ask Jesus one thing. I was surprised to find out that in the Gospels, I learned this from Eugene Peterson, that there is only one place in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something. And I was surprised the things that it wasn't. I mean, I can imagine if I was following Jesus around, I would have said things like, Lord, teach me to heal people like you do. Teach me to drive out these diseases. Teach me to drive out the work of the enemy. Teach me to do these powerful things that you do. Or Lord, help me to teach and preach like you do. Gosh, wouldn't that be wonderful? If I could command the crowds and, and gather thousands of people like you do, Jesus, would you teach me? Or Jesus, would you teach me to manage and lead and influence others and start a movement of God? Or would you help me manage the money purse better? Or maybe you could teach me more about the Bible. Give me a Bible study, Lord. Teach me to understand the scriptures. All wonderful things. But there's only one thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. And it was on the subject of prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And it was this request that gave us the Lord's Prayer. And I like what Eugene Peterson sums it up. He says, they want to do well what Jesus does best. They want to do well what Jesus does best. They saw something about Jesus' prayer life. They saw the power that came in, in his life. They saw him always rising early to pray. And they said, Lord, teach us to do what you do. This is the one area that we would like to grow in. This is the one thing that we, that we see could revolutionize our lives. Would you teach us? And this morning, we're going to be continuing our sermon series on Unlocking the Parables, where we're looking at all the, the short stories that Jesus taught. And Jesus had three parables that dealt with the subject of prayer. And no matter how long you've been praying, there is always more to learn from the Master. From the Master. He is our teacher. He is our Lord. And we can pray the same prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to go deeper. Teach me to relearn prayer. Teach me further depths of prayer. We want to learn to do well what Jesus does best. So this morning, we have uh, three points to correspond to the three parables. And each point is going to begin with a truth about who God is. Because at the end of the day, prayer is really less about the words that you say and more about the character of the God to whom we pray. It's all about the character of God. So each point is going to begin with an attribute of God and then how we can pray in light of this truth about who God is. So let me show you how this works in number one. Number one, God delights us, delights to give us what we need. There's the truth. So how do we pray in light of that? So pray boldly. God delights to give us what we need. So pray boldly. The first parable that we're going to look at is called The Friend at Midnight. It's out of Luke 11, verses 5 through 8. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to, to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be all in the Gospel of Luke today. And now, in this story, 
a man has a friend who shows up at his house at midnight, and he realizes he, he doesn't have any food, or at least he doesn't have enough food to properly welcome a guest. Now, to understand this parable, you need, you need to know a few things about the ancient Middle Eastern culture. You need to know, first of all, that hospitality is a primary virtue. That the, the culture there, they, they, it was so important to them that to host travelers, to host friends, to host family, and especially to host strangers. This was extremely important. The second thing you need to understand is that they lived in an honor and shame culture. This means that you could gain status or honor by good things you did, and you, you could lose that reputation. You could lose that honor by failing to live up to the community's codes and expectations. And so how you showed hospitality either brought you honor or brought you shame. In fact, the whole vi village would have viewed hospitality as a communal responsibility. That this isn't just the man's responsibility. No, the whole village must show hospitality to this traveler. And so in this story... The honor of the whole village is at stake. It's really important how they show hospitality to this stranger. And everyone in the community would have understood the importance of doing this for the traveler. And finally, you need to understand the importance of bread. Bread was, was so important to the people. In fact, it's what, is what we would call our fork and spoon. Because there would be a communal pot of food and you would rip off the piece of the communal bread, and you would dip it in the pot of food, and that's how you would eat. And so if you don't have bread, you literally cannot eat. And so bread is very, very important. So to not serve bread would be horrific. So let's look at the story again, and I want to put it on the screen to you, because I want to show it to you from uh, the English Standard Version. Because really the idea here, this is verses 5 through 7. They're one bit, it's one big, long question. So it's a little bit hard to follow, but let me, let's, let me read it to you. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And suppose he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So the idea here is, um, Jesus is saying, Imagine this situation. Would you ever have a friend who would respond to you in this type of situation, this hypothetical situation? And when you look at this story through the lens of the Middle Eastern culture, the expected answer is no. No friend would possibly say this to you in this situation. We are to imagine Jesus' Jewish audience smiling at these ridiculous excuses for not showing hospitality. Everyone would have understood this is so important. A traveler has come. We must show hospitality. We must, at the very least, provide bread so that he may eat. And so these excuses, oh, these are ridiculous. Don't bother me. The door is shut. My children are in bed. No. We, they would show hospitality anyway. Now, to be clear, midnight is still an inconvenient hour. It was inconvenient then as it is now. In fact, this probably would have been even more inconvenient. Because families at that time typically lived in one-room houses. So you'd have the door, and there'd be all, all the stuff that you owned in, front, in, in the front. And then in the back, there would be a raised platform where everyone in the whole family would sleep on this platform. So if I come to your house knocking on the door at midnight asking for bread, guess what? The toddlers are awake. The babies are awake. Mom, mom, mom is trying to handle everything. This is a really inconvenient hour to come, is it not? 
But then Jesus says, look what he says in verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not give up, get up and give you bread because of your friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This man has shameless audacity. He has boldness, even though he knows it's an inconvenient hour, he knows that hospitality is so important, I must urgently request this from my friend. He does not care that it's midnight. He does not care that he's waking up the whole house, disturbing the people, the kids, and the animals. No, he does not care. He is shameless. And this was the expected way of showing urgency. And very similar to what we have today, but uh, there's one scholar that says that this was the conventional way of stressing the legitimacy and urgency of a request in the ancient Middle East. This man must ask boldly and without shame. And that's what he does. He comes. I need help. I need friend. Or I need bread for my friend. He asks boldly. He wants to communicate that this is a really important request. And because, Jesus says, because the man asked boldly, he can expect a positive response. He can expect to get what he needs. And this is the point of the parable. If you can expect your neighbor to help you at such an inconvenient hour, how much more should you expect your heavenly Father to provide what you need? God, after all, is actually not like the friend who's sleeping. God isn't sleeping at midnight. You are not a nuisance to God. You are not an inconvenience to God. No, he wants to hear from you. He wants to provide for his children. And if a friend who is inconvenienced at midnight is expected to provide, how much more will your heavenly Father provide for you? This is why Jesus can matter-of-factly say in verses 9 through 10, he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. God delights to give you what you need. So boldly come and ask. We have not because we ask not, but God is eager and willing to help his children. So boldly approach the throne and ask for the good gifts from your heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul puts it another way in Philippians 4, 6-7. through He says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Anybody ever worry about anything? <laughs> I think we all do, right? Let God know what you need. Let God know your worries. Turn your anxious thoughts into gratitude-soaked prayer and see your Heavenly Father provide for you. God delights to give you what you need. So pray boldly. Let him know. Let him know what is on your heart. Let him know what is troubling you. He wants to hear from you. That's number one. Number two, God will be faithful to set all things right. That's the truth. So how do we respond? So pray faithfully. God will be faithful to set all things right. So pray faithfully. The second parable we're looking at is sometimes called the parable of the persistent widow. Or if you're looking at the other character, it's called the parable of the unjust judge. But really, the, the parable is about both of these characters. 
And this is one of the few parables where Jesus tells us the point at the beginning. In verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And right off the bat, we know that there is a judge who is corrupt. He does not fear God, and he does not care what others think. In other words, he is guilty of breaking the great commands. He doesn't love God, and he doesn't love people. He doesn't care about either of those things. And so this widow is facing an unjust legal situation, an unjust system. Widows, orphans, and foreigners were the ones that God told the society to look out for the most. They did not have the standard protections or provisions that the rest of society had. And she had no protector or advocate on her side. And we find out that some type of injustice has happened to this woman. Rather than helping this widow, someone has taken, has taken advantage of her. And perhaps they have stolen some of her property or something else. We're not exactly sure. But she keeps coming back to the judge, probably every day, and says, Grant me justice against my adversary. And then it says in verse 4, For some time the judge refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Eventually, this widow, she wears the judge down. Now, in the Greek, the judge is not really worried about this widow coming and attacking him. In the Greek, it's this sense of this widow is, is pummeling him. And, and the, the sense is this woman is giving the judge a headache. He's tired of this woman coming back, and he says, enough is enough. Finally, I'll give you what you asked for to get you out of my hair. That's what's going on. And I have to ask, at the outset, is this how prayer is supposed to work? That we should just keep pestering God like a toddler until we get what we want? Is that what we are supposed to do? You know, I think many of us, we have stories of how we kept on praying for something. We kept persisting in prayer and God finally answered. People who have come to Christ after decades or emotional or physical healing that we've been praying for. And it finally comes and we see God answer. Yet there are things on the other hand. Many of us have stories where we've been praying, we've been praying, and there is no answer, and there will be no answer. It is lost in a sea of darkness. This prayer has gone unanswered. Anyone who has faithfully prayed over the years has experienced the feeling of the psalmist in chapter 10, verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. God, where are you? Why does it seem that you're silent? Why don't you answer my prayers? We know that sometimes we don't receive answers. So let's not make it worse by saying that this pas passage teaches that, well, if we just keep praying, we will get what we want. That is not what this parable is teaching. If this parable isn't teaching that, then what, then what is this parable saying? Well, I think the key to unlocking this parable is found, as usual, in the context. In Luke 17, Jesus had just been asked about when the kingdom of God would finally come. In other, word, in other words, when would God become king again? When will all the evil, all the injustice, all of the oppression and violence and brokenness of our world, when will it be done away with? When will there be peace? When will all things be set right? And the widow is asking for something similar. 
Grant me justice. There's something wrong. It needs to be set right. And then look at verse 7. What are the people of God praying for? And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? The people in this prayer are not just praying for what they want. They're not just praying for what they desire. They are praying for justice. They are praying for God's kingdom to finally come, for every wrong to be righted. The content of this prayer is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what they are praying for. The prayer is, oh God, end all this evil, restore this broken world, grant justice to your people, come back, Lord Jesus, and make everything right. That's what they're praying for. And this is a how much more parable. If even an unjust and corrupt judge will eventually grant justice to a widow who badgers him, how much more will our perfect God grant justice to his people who pray to him day and night to restore this broken world? That's why Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, God will see that they will get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So how, now notice the connection here. How will God's people finally see justice? How will they see the kingdom finally come? It says, when the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man returns. When Jesus finally comes back, he will restore his kingdom and set every wrong and make it right. Jesus will eventually come back. And we should not be embarrassed about the delay between his first coming and his second. Because the Bible told us about this. Second Peter, one of the disciples closest to Jesus, he said this, With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is not slow in bringing about justice. With him, time is not like our time. And he is waiting, he is working for everyone to come to the knowledge of his son, to the knowledge of the truth, to repent of their sin and to put their trust in Jesus Christ. So the implied question of this parable is not will we get what we want. No, it's will God be faithful to his promises? And the answer is yes. God will be faithful to his promises. He will set every wrong and make it right. But then Jesus does something interesting. He turns the question back onto us. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, God will be faithful, but will you be faithful to him? Will you be faithful in prayer? Will you keep on praying no matter how bleak it looks? Will you keep on going, working and extending the kingdom no matter when justice doesn't seem like it's coming, when prayers don't seem like they're being answered? Will you keep being faithful? Because God will be faithful to you. This parable, it's not about pestering God to get what we want. It's about staying faithful to keep on praying no matter what. I like what Eugene Peterson says when he sums this up. He says, we don't give up on prayer. Because we know that God is everything that the evil judge is not. We know that neither silence nor absence is evident of contempt or indifference. And being faithful, it is a faith life, a praying life that participates here and now in God setting the world right. Not waiting for a sign, not looking for an event, 
like this widow who keeps coming back. She keeps coming back every day. Grant me justice. So we keep on praying in spite of unanswered prayer, in spite of the evil that we see in the world, in spite of discouragement and despair, we know that God will be faithful to one day answer our prayers and bring in the kingdom and bring in justice. God will be faithful to set all things right. So pray faithfully. And finally this morning, number three, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So pray humbly. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So pray humbly. The final parable that we come to is called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And in the story, two men go up to the temple to pray at the same time. And in it, the Pharisee basically says, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all these other people, these sinners, and especially I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector, on the other hand, he beats his chest, which would have been extremely unusual in the Middle Eastern culture for, man to, for a man to do this. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In Jesus' day, Pharisees were among the most respected people in society. They were, they were doing as best as they could to keep God's law, to honor the Torah, and to be good, devout followers of Yahweh. But in fact, most Christians were very familiar with Jesus' condemnations and critiques of the Pharisees. So we don't really see the Pharisee as positive. But you can be assured that Jesus' audience in this story, they would have viewed the Pharisee as very positive. This is a man who desires to follow God. And they would have certainly seen the tax collector as despised and as unrighteous before God because they worked with the foreign, power, foreign powers of Rome and they often exploited others for their own financial gain. So if, there, if there's one person who is right with God, surely it's the Pharisee. And if there's one person who is not right with God, it is surely the tax collector. And that's the key question of this parable. What makes us right with God? What makes us right with God? The parable teaches it's not our righteousness, it's not our trust in our own goodness or worthiness, but rather it is our humility. It is the humility to say that I need the grace of Jesus Christ, that I am a big sinner, and I need mercy from God. It's really important to God that we stay humble and that we don't compare ourselves to other people. And uh, I, I, I found this to be true in all of my marathon training. Often when I'm out running in the woods, I encounter somebody else who is running. Sometimes I'm faster than them, and I'm able to pass them. And I think, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I can pass out this person. And then, and then about a week or two ago, I had men who were in their 80s. Okay, they were probably like 63. But... <laughs> They were definitely seniors, and they, they passed me up on my 20-mile run. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I am, just, I am just so out of shape. I can't believe these old guys are just passing me up. This is ridiculous. But I, but I have learned that these people are not running the same race that I'm running. They could have just started out. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I feel better about myself here. They, they could have been at the end of 30 miles. I have no idea. But the reality is we don't know where other people start and other people finish. And when we compare ourselves, it can be disastrous. If I think, well, I'm passing up this person, well, they might be on mile 20 and I'm on mile 1. They started somewhere else. They didn't start the same place I did. And they might finish somewhere else. There was one run where I was on, my, I was on a 16-mile run, 
and I got passed by a guy who was pushing a stroller. And I mean, this, this guy flew by me. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. Laura was with me. I, I can't believe this. Then you know what? 30 seconds later, I see the man stopped at Warrenville Library and his, and his training was over. I said, oh, okay. He was finishing out the run. But I had no idea that he was about to finish and I had 16 more miles to go. The point is when you compare, it might lead you to despair of where you're at or it might lead you to pride against somebody else. But you don't know where somebody else started. You don't know what God, what God has for them. You don't know what their path is, what their purpose is. You should just stop all of that comparison because God has a unique plan and purpose and timeline for your life. We're all unique, aren't we? So we need to drop the comparison game. What's ironic about this story is Christians were very familiar with Jesus' problems with the Pharisees. But Jesus' audience, they would have been nodding along, along with the Pharisee. And some might, have, some might have joined in and they said, Yes, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector either. But for most Christians, we have the opposite tendency. Because we know of Jesus' condemnations of the Pharisees, we think, God, thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. Thank you that I know not to be so judgmental. I know to welcome all the tax collectors of the world. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that Pharisee at all. Now, we probably don't literally pray that, but we do think it. And the point of this parable is not to, to baptize the lifestyle of the tax collector. Certainly, the, the things that he were doing were unethical and wrong. And we should not begin to compare ourselves to the Pharisee either. Because both the Pharisee and the tax collector, they are called to recognize their sins before God, to renounce them wholeheartedly, and to plead for mercy. And then God will hear. God will justify. The church is a hospital for all sinners. It is not a place for those who think they are doing well, but for those who know they are sick. Everyone is welcome to come, but it's not our own righteousness that makes us right with God. It's not what we do. It is our humility. It is seeing Jesus Christ crucified on the cross and saying, yes, my sins put him there. I know it. I'm guilty. I am a sinner. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. And he models for us the humility we must have before God. The church is a place where we all are humbly invited to renounce our sins, to see our guilt, to see our need, and to find the grace of Jesus Christ, and to find the power of the Holy Spirit to change and be transformed into the image of Jesus. And when we have that humility, we can trust that God will hear our prayers and he will grant our desires for forgiveness and for transformation. And Jesus concludes this parable by saying, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So brothers and sisters, would you keep on asking the master to teach you to pray? Oh, I have so much further to go. This is the prayer I've been praying to the Lord too. Oh Lord, teach me to pray. I want to go deeper. I want to know how to pray better. I want to know how to pray like you prayed, Jesus. Teach me to pray. God delights to give you what you need. So pray boldly. God will be faithful to set all things right. So pray faithfully. And God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So pray humbly. Pray boldly, 
Pray faithfully, pray humbly, and see your heavenly Father meet all your needs in Christ Jesus. We're going to move to prayer now. And as we prepare for communion, I invite you to have the same posture as that tax collector. To say, oh Holy Spirit, search me. Where do I need to confess? Where do I need to renounce? Where do I need to find mercy? And prepare your heart to receive the table this morning. And then I will, I will close this in prayer. And we will say the Lord's Prayer together. So let's be silent before the Lord, confessing our sins.